From a dot in the middle of the map, this is Midwesternish. I'm Gina Kaufman. A few years ago, I went to the Garden of Eden, which is not as far away as you might think. It's in a small town called Lucas in north-central Kansas. Like a lot of small towns around here, Lucas has a history in agriculture, an industry that's providing fewer and fewer jobs. But the town is known around the world for grassroots art. And people here see art as their chance for survival. That's why the whole town's future hinges in a weird way on one unlikely guy. I grew up about 35 miles from here, uh, though I knew very little about the Garden of Eden. What I remember is that it was very mysterious, looked like a Mayan ruin. That's John Hagmeister. He's a sculptor. And these days, he has a pretty sweet teaching gig at KU. He travels internationally for artist residencies. But back in the 1980s, he was just a young artist getting his start with a day job as a bricklayer. He had just taken over a dilapidated farm, and he was at the courthouse to register his land in a conservation program. I read anything, and I was reading a a land book, a land-like catalog, and it said, historic tourist attraction near Wilson Lake for sale, and I thought, it can't be the Garden of Eden. And I called, and it was. On this episode, when that one weird neighbor becomes a town's main attraction. The Garden of Eden is the place that turned Lucas into a mecca for grassroots art enthusiasts. It's a crazy labyrinth of concrete sculptures. Stick figure people, animals, lots of flags. They're all connected, like a billowy concrete net stretching over this one lawn. All this concrete is hollow. And when you get up there, like when I'm working on the electric up above, everything's moving. It's all flexing in the wind. These sculptures were built by a cantankerous Civil War veteran named S.P. Dinsmore. He meant for them to tell stories, parables expressing biting social commentary. But they're hard to decode. Here's where, this is where it gets really into some interesting things, if you don't mind the rain. No, I don't mind. This is all about social Darwinism. So here you have this octopus, right? It's controlling a soldier. The next tree, the soldier is shooting at an Indian because... Okay, so the whole octopus thing is pretty strange. But the octopus represents money and financial interest. As soon as he gets in the way, a disastrous chain of events is set in motion, subverting nature itself. So the soldier is shooting at the Indian, and the Indian is shooting at a dog. The dog is crawling up a tree to grab a fox... The fox is getting ready to, to eat that bird, and the bird, if you can see way up there, come around on this side and I think you can see it better, there's a tiny caterpillar right there. Oh no, the hail broke the caterpillar. Oh. It did, but that, there's a little caterpillar up there. Damn hail, but um, we'll have to fix that. But um, he's saying the caterpillar's eating a leaf. So. He's saying, this is a chain of being that I have seen in my lifetime. It doesn't have to be this way. Biblical characters make their way into the mix, but even though it's called the Garden of Eden, the guy who built it was agnostic and totally irreverent. John takes me to the entrance, where Adam and Eve hold hands in front of a grape trellis. They're wearing loincloths. 
it's interesting that with all of his willingness to be scandalous, he does have like cement loincloth type things on he these. Added pe- those later. <laughs> there are storks overhead, looking down on Adam and Eve with working light bulbs in their beaks. Here we have two storks, right? And there's little babies. What is that all about? Comstock laws. At the time, it was a federal offense to mail information about birth control. So he made these sculptures and he said, well, we all know that storks deliver the babies and they usually come at night, so I put lights in mine. When the artist S.P. Dinsmore died, he wanted to be mummified and he wanted to be displayed in a mausoleum on premises. He told his children, I'm going to die soon and I'm going to be preserved like an Egyptian mummy. And you can watch. And he had a concrete coffin he made. And he, for an extra 25 cents, he would, in, during tours, he would get in his coffin. <laughs> Do we know why he wanted to be mummified? To uh, keep people coming. To keep people coming to see the place. Yeah. I mean, it was all about getting people to come here to see his beliefs. For a while after he died, they kept the mausoleum locked. Visitors couldn't enter because, well, they didn't preserve his entire brain. So there's a little mold on the glass lid of the coffin just over his face. These days, if you want to pay your respects to the artist, you can do that. John took me inside the mausoleum. When the first time I came in here, the woman who was giving the tour came up here and she said, I remember him, I'm not going in there. And she handed me a flashlight and open this door, and I walked in, and she slammed the door behind me. So that was creepy. S.P. Dinsmore is the only mummified man I have ever seen, so I'm not a good judge of the results, although I suspect the guy looked better alive. After Dinsmore's death and mummification, a few different owners took over the grounds, all of them with the best intentions to care for the place. But it wasn't long before weeds started to grow over all the sculptures, and one thing after another fell apart. When John Hagmeister took over the place, he had no idea what he was getting into. There was a point where people started really appreciating grassroots art, and that is good And that a lot of sites were just had been bulldozed. The bad part was that suddenly it had value and some grassroots art sites were cut up and sold by the piece on the east and west coast. He'd been part of a grassroots art organization in Kansas for a while, so he knew all the local people with an interest in this stuff. He went around trying to get one of them to buy the Garden of Eden, but no one would touch this strange crumbling sculpture park with the dead guy on display. Eventually, it became clear to John that the only person who wanted this place enough to take on the burden of ownership was him. But keep in mind, this wasn't the most practical of investments. When I told people that I was buying it, some people thought I was nuts and told me, that, like, you're an idiot. Honestly, I was very naive, and I think that a lot of times you get into these things not knowing, and if you knew everything, you probably wouldn't do it. One of the biggest problems was that John lived more than 200 miles away from the Garden of Eden, and the never-ending to-do list he'd purchased 
along with it. Things would break down, and we had electrical problems. We just, there was just always a little bit of work. It was ridiculous, but drive 200 miles and mow the lawn. But sometimes it just had to be done, and there wasn't anybody to mow it. Uh, there were times when I came out and just gave tours, because there was nobody to give tours. I totally wore out a 1977 F-150 pickup. A marriage went away, and uh, a lot of money went away. There's a point where you don't, you go through this phase where you don't see it anymore. All you see are things that need to be done. And then, but there is some point, and like we're sitting in a room on the second floor, and the door over here goes out into the upstairs porch. And to take a chair and go out there in the evening, turn on the lights in the sculptures, it's magical. It's partly about the man who built the Garden of Eden, S.P. Dinsmore. He made all this sculpture going up and down ladders with a bucket of concrete at a time. And he was starting to go blind and he, he was struggling. If this man who is in his 80s and has heart failure and is going blind, and he's only five foot two something, and he is hauling all this concrete up a bucket at a time, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not gonna complain about driving 200 miles, that's nothing. So it's partly about Dinsmore, and partly about saving the sculpture, but more and more, it's about saving the town of Lucas, Kansas. John worried, and still worries, about whether Lucas can survive beyond the current generation. As agriculture changes and industrializes, fewer people are needed on farms. But Lucas does have a handful of grassroots art destinations that have grown up around the Garden of Eden. Together, these sites draw tons of tourists. John tells me an average of 7,000 people come through here a year. To put that in perspective, only about 400 people actually live in Lucas. And the feeling in Lucas is everyone's survival depends on art. Brant's meat market is packed on a Saturday afternoon. A few people are standing in line for cold cuts and sausage, but the rest are just hanging out. Douglas Brandt holds court behind the counter. He has a wry smile, suntanned skin, and neatly combed silver hair. There are pens sticking out of the pocket of his short-sleeved button-down. This meat market's been in his family for 93 years. He loves grassroots art. That's been the draw for Lucas for quite a few years with the Garden of Eden, the Art Center, and some of the new projects that we put in town. It, it brings a lot of people in through our area. It sure does. Mm -hmm. Farmer Greg Bland has lived in Lucas his whole life, and he's hanging out with buddies in the meat market, too. He agrees that art is important to Lucas. It uh, brings a lot of people to town. Uh, I drive down Main Street some days, and there are tour buses sitting in town which is a little bit surprising for a town this size. But what about farming? This is Kansas we're talking about, and Greg is a farmer. It's a viable industry, of course, but the numbers of people that it takes to do that are uh, dramatically less than they were, you know, even 20 years ago, and uh, way less than they were, say, 50 years ago. So that's the big change, and that's what uh, hurts a lot of small towns. It's just, it's a numbers thing. S.P. Dinsmore might have been the first free spirit to really let loose in Lucas when he built the Garden of Eden, 
but he certainly wasn't the last. In fact, some people think he's inspired neighbors to build things in their own lawns with whatever they happen to have around. Every other yard around here has a handmade monument of some kind. Every establishment carries a hand-drawn map of all the quirky grassroots art projects, and there are lots of them, like the country's second-best public restroom, which is a freestanding building shaped like a toilet. Anybody in here? I don't think so. Anybody in there? Yeah, there's yeah. somebody in there. So you can, you can go look at this one. The walls inside are mosaics made of toy tractors and superheroes in the men's room and broken pieces of dishes in the women's room. Even the fire department has freeform paintings of fire trucks on the windows. Next door to the Garden of Eden, you won't find a convenience store. Instead, you'll find the world's largest collection of the smallest versions of the world's largest things. I dare you to say that five times fast. Do you think that the um, the grassroots arts identity for Lucas could could be enough to keep the town strong despite that, or, or do you think more would have to happen? I think more would have to happen. I would say at best it's probably stabilized the numbers. Don't tell that to Marianne Steinley. She works at the Garden of Eden on Sundays. She used to be a teacher, but when the high school here closed due to dwindling populations, she had to find something new. Now she juggles several jobs, including this one. I love it. I, I've told my husband I could live here. If the plumbing worked, I would definitely move in. <laughs> Working at the Garden of Eden has given Marianne an appreciation for the importance of tourism to the economy and identity of Lucas. In the seven years I've worked here, I've had people from every state several times and probably 30 or 40 different countries. And uh, to be honest with you, prior to working here, I had no idea the numbers of people that came here and, and the distances they traveled from. It's just incredible. I had a gal from uh, Germany one time. It was her first trip to America. She had three places she wanted to see. New York City, the Alamo, and the Garden of Eden in Lucas, Kansas. But she does see Lucas struggling. One of her jobs is at the library, and they just cut the hours, along with some of her shifts. There are a lot of us here in town that just feel this is our home. And um, I mean, I've had people tell me, why do you live in Lucas, Kansas? You can live anywhere you want. Well, my husband and I just decided we wanted to be around family and we wanted to raise our kids here. Everybody feels like family. You don't have to worry about your kid walking down the street or riding bikes or walking their dogs, you know, because everybody knows each other and, and they take care of each other. Wanting to live somewhere only matters so much if you can't find work. Marianne's daughter just graduated from KU Medical School. Her degree is in radiologic technology, a useful degree anywhere. Anywhere with the hospital, of course. She's actually moved back to Hayes, but she wanted to be closer to home. This way she can come home whenever she wants to. And Hayes, was Hayes as close as she could get in her career? Yes. Yeah, at that time. Uh, you know, at this time it is. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. She may end up here yet anyway. And that is exactly the kind of hope that weighs on John Hagmeister. It might have been about saving the sculpture when he got into it all, but now it's about saving a place that people want to keep calling home. With the sculpture requiring endless amounts of work, his cars and relationships falling apart, and stockholders wanting out, John needed help. 
His solution came in the form of a foundation specializing in the restoration of outdoor grassroots art environments like the Garden of Eden, Kohler Foundation in Wisconsin. I drove to Sheboygan and uh, had a really great visit and uh, explained the situation and where we were. And it took a couple years. The people from Kohler decided to take on the Garden of Eden. They showed up in Lucas to draw up paperwork, sign some contracts, and take this huge weight off John Hagmeister's shoulders. There was just one hitch. The Kohler Foundation planned to close the Garden of Eden for as long as it took to restore the place. People who come to the Garden of Eden then go downtown, they go to the meat market and the restaurants, they come here and eat. We couldn't close the Garden of Eden, we had to stay open. And that's what he told them. This sale does not go through if it means this place will be closed for any period of time. If it was a deal breaker, it was a deal breaker. You know, there's, when you're an artist, you take risks. Part of of being an artist is uh, actually enjoying risk-taking. Kohler didn't walk in the end. It was amazing. When Kohler purchased the Garden of Eden, John was able to pay back all the people who had invested in the project since 1988. Meanwhile, he formed a nonprofit called Friends of S.P. Dinsmore's Garden of Eden. And when the renovations were complete, the Kohler Foundation deeded the Garden of Eden to that nonprofit, with one stipulation. That if the S.P. Dinsmore's Garden of Eden does not take care of it, Kohler takes it back. It's part of the contract. And so Kohler at any point could take this back. Um, But also you you do so much work and you know, honestly, the money wasn't the deal. The money wasn't the deal. It was the, uh, I'm kind of struggling with words here, but it was the, the wonderful opportunity to literally own a part of something that was so wonderful and to then let it go. And at some point, you know, I'll turn my keys in and I won't be part of this anymore. And um, uh, that's just, that's life. But for now, John is still president of the board of the nonprofit that runs the Garden of Eden, and he's still the unofficial handyman in chief, burning up those highway miles between Lawrence and Lucas. This episode of Midwesternish was produced by Matt Hodap. Sylvia Maria Gross is our editor, and you can subscribe to our podcast on NPR One or wherever you generally do that kind of thing. I also host a show on Kansas City's public radio station, KCUR 89.3. It's called Central Standard, so just head on over to kcur.org if you want to check it out. I'm Gina Kaufman. Catch you next time. <laughs>